0: Hello and welcome to Geezers of Gear, episode number eighty already. This podcast today is brought to you by Act Lighting. Act is North America's leading distributor and manufacturer of entertainment technology products with award-winning brands including MA Lighting, Ayrton, Chainmaster, Luxibel, AC Power, Robert Juliet, Zack Track and MDG, as well as cable and interconnect solutions for virtually any audio, video, data, or power distribution need from Rapco Horizon, Proco, and Roadhog. ACT Lighting and Ayrton are happy to announce the release of the new Huracan X fixture. Based on the popular and highly successful Huracan, the X stands for extremely bright. Boasting a 50,000-plus lumen output via a 1,000-watt LED light engine as its source, this fixture from Ayrton exceeds the highest light output of most major brands while also matching the leaders. The fixture is a welcome addition for lighting designers considering the current array of hard-edged profile fixtures, Its dual animation wheels and gobo cassettes provide unique graphic animation effects, while its superb brightness also allows this moving light to compete with the brightest fixtures on the market. ACT employs over 600 team members who are each dedicated to providing exemplary service and support and ensuring the show goes on by maintaining inventory and 24-7, 365-day technical expertise in nine locations throughout the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Check out Ayrton and Olivax lines at actlighting.com. Wow. Is it really episode 80 already? I think I kind of blinked my eyes a year went by and here we are, 80 episodes. Crazy. Thank you everyone for continuing to listen. Thank you to all of our sponsors today. Act Lighting, of course, but all of our sponsors for believing in what I'm doing here and continuing to support us. We appreciate it very much. And please, I know I've mentioned it before, but when you like these episodes or when you're on these episodes or when you like the person who's on these episodes, please forward them, retweet them, Instagram post them, Facebook like them, whatever it is you do, but please do it. Please help us share the episodes, grow the following and uh, continue this thing growing. So I appreciate it once again. I'm extremely grateful for all of the all of those people who listen to this, especially the ones who listen every week, but certainly everyone those who su- subscribe, those who uh, share it, etc. I'm very grateful for the guests who continue to be more and more interesting, um, including last, uh, the last episode, I was going to say last week, but we've been doing so many of these that it's two or three a week. Um, but the last episode, the prior episode, which was 79, uh, Seth Jackson, which was, um, a lot of fun to do. Seth has a great story. Um, you know, again, recently Cosmo, Ben, Benoit, um, you know, again, I'm really proud and, and grateful for, for people to be interested in coming on this podcast. And I love talking with all of you. Um, and I wanted to share a couple of uh, sort of anecdotes or lessons that have come through sort of collectively in the last few episodes, specifically um, guys are saying the same thing over and over again, which is uh, kind of interesting. So one is this um, idea or concept that you should always say yes and then figure it out after the fact. And we've heard that from two or three designers recently. Um, I was actually listening to today's guest on uh, on a YouTube video and heard the same thing come from his guest So say yes and then figure it out. People who say no or I don't know how to do that, what happens is that person doesn't come back to you again. So they assume you're either uh, you know, unknowing, which maybe you are, but you don't want to let on to that, or um, you're just not a helpful person that they'll keep in their sort of uh, repertoire of people that they come back to to ask those questions in the future. So the general philosophy is to say yes to everything pretty much and then go figure it out. And when I say say yes to everything, you know, if, if someone wants to do a concert on the moon, um, you've got to say no. If, if someone wants to uh, do the impossible, I mean, there are things that are just physically or from a timeline standpoint, they're just impossible. And you have to be willing and ready to say no to that. And, um, as, uh, I just heard Jake Barry say on this other, uh, podcast or, or video, you have to back up that no with a really strong reason why you're saying no. And, um, and he used an example, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was like, let's play in New York today and, and in, you know, somewhere else, uh, tomorrow. And it was just virtually impossible to get there or two shows in one day on different continents or something. Um, and so. You know, the, the idea of say yes, then figure it out just means, you know, um, hey, Bob, can, can, you know, can you figure out how to fix uh, or how to design a pod around the keyboard player that, you know, highlights the keyboard player better? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. And you may not at that very moment know how to do that, but you do know some resources that you can go to to figure it out. And you'll get that answer back. You'll get it done. And um, you'll stay on their list of people to go to because you're a go-to guy. Another one was the idea of outworking everyone around you. And I've always believed in this. I've been an overachiever my whole life. If, if my sales target was $100, I tried to sell $110 or $120. I was always pushing very, very hard to outdo or outsell or outwork the people around me. And um, I've heard that now from a few designers recently who have said the same thing. You know, basically, if they started out as a roadie or as a stagehand, they wanted to outwork the people around them. They wanted to show the production manager or the tour manager or whoever it was they were trying to impress that. Um, they were not only willing to do the hard work, but they were willing to do it harder and better and faster than the people around them. And I think that that's an incredible uh, sort of idea around the, the concept of, of work ethic. And um, again, it's something that I've lived my career on and I believe in completely. And so then the third is basically that the artist is the artist. He's not your friend, he's not your family, he's not your equal. Um, they are the artist. You're not the artist. People aren't paying money for a ticket to go see a light show. And I think uh, Seth recently said it best when he said, you know, the ticket doesn't say Roby BMFL show. It says, you know, whoever the artist is. And so I think that the designers who continue to do really, really great work and to maintain those amazing long-term relationships with, you know, top-tier artists are the ones who who recognize that. And I'm not saying you're a lower person or you're a lesser person than the artist is. We're all just people. We all, as they say, put our pants on one leg at a time. But um, you know, they are the one that the people are listening to their music and paying money to come hear them perform that music live. And you are just doing your very best to supplement or to augment or to just make sure that that music comes through and that performance comes through in the artist's vision. And so, um, Seth, I think, really said this well, but all of the top designers who have come on, Mark Brickman, everyone has basically said the same thing. I am there to make them look good. I am there to uh, help the music and the performance and the art come through that. I'm not there, uh, you know, to uh, show off to my friends or to to whatever. Certainly it's a job and you're getting a paycheck, but you you need to know your place in, in that food chain, I guess, is what it is. Um, so we mentioned it in the intro uh the sponsor today again is act uh act lighting so this is just a coincidence i'm not saying this because they're our sponsor today but i'm kind of excited about a new fixture that has just come out um i know the trend right now there's a couple of trends that i've seen the sort of small to mid-range fixture that is replacing um things like the old 700 watt uh you know the Max 700 and Roby has a fixture. Everyone has a fixture sort of in that small to mid-range light. And so that's a big trend. Uh, But the other big trend is LED sourced fixtures that are extremely bright, extremely powerful for big arena shows or stadium shows uh, to compete with the likes of the BMFL. And so um, I know Alation has one, which um, I believe is called the Proteus Maximus. And now uh, Ayrton has released one called the Huracan X. So they already had this Huracan fixture, and I believe it was a 750-watt LED lamp source. Now it's a 1,000-watt, and it's delivering over 50,000 lumens. And is very capable of you know competing with those top tier fixtures. So you know this to me is pretty exciting because sort of the last stronghold of the discharge lamps seems to be the big bright fixtures, and um, more than one manufacturer is tackling that. I'm sure it's a trend that's going to continue with all of the manufacturers where they're coming in with their releases of super bright thousand, and then it'll probably be 1200 watt led lamps or led packages um you know obviously not just the output, but also the ability to add more features into a fixture because it is an LED. It's not a 2000 watt discharge lamp that's producing incredible amounts of heat. Instead, it's 1000 watt, which produces half as much heat. So um, at the end of the day, watts equals heat. So, you know, 100 watts of LED is going to put out the same amount of heat as 100 watts of discharge in general. And I don't want to get any more techie than that because I'll, I'll expose myself. And so... Um, but I, again, it's an extent, it's an exciting trend in the sort of top tier of moving light fixtures. I'm excited about it. Um, so yeah, good on them. Uh, today I have, uh, a gentleman named Patrick Whalen, who, if you know, Patrick, he is a, um, very interesting guy. He's been around the industry a long time at the top of sort of the event business, especially on the West coast. Um, Patrick spent time with, uh, PRG with, um, a, a number of companies, uh, especially again in the Western U S he now has backstage productions, Inc, and I'm a little confused and I'm going to ask him about this because there's a lot of versions of backstage productions. And so I wanted to talk to him about that. But one of the other things and the way I found him and, uh, I mean, I've known him before, but the way I found him recently was he's actually doing the equivalent of a podcast, but on on video on YouTube, and it's pretty um, it's it it's pretty interesting. You know, first of all, some of the guests that he's had already. Well, one in particular, uh, Jake Barry, who you know I'm a big fan of, probably the best and you know one of the greatest production managers ever. Um, but a really really great interview that I just listened to this morning. And um, and I recommend everyone goes. I don't know. Uh, I guess he'll tell us how to get to it. But I would assume that if you go to YouTube and you search "backstage pass," which I believe is what his um, his video series is called "backstage pass," Jake Berry. I would assume that you'll find it. Um, it was just recorded a couple of weeks ago in February of 2020. So, uh, you know, really, really looking forward to talking with Patrick. Today. And so let's just go ahead and get Patrick on right now. Okay. So here we have Patrick Whalen on Gears of Gear episode 980. Sorry, 80. I'm aging myself. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. And
1: so, I was hoping to be like number 1000. That was like, and then there'd be like big balloons and confetti on the screen and all that. That, that yeah. would have been much
0: Yeah. You know, I don't know if we'll get to a thousand. This is a lot of work. Like when I started this thing, I had no idea what I was signing up for. It just sounded like a really great idea. Hey, let's do a podcast. And I can tell you the last couple of weeks we've done or I've done um, three a week. And it's just an oh insane gosh. amount of work, and I don't have a team of engineers behind me or helpers or anything. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's super fun. I like doing it, but it is also a lot of work. And uh, and you know, I have a company like you do as well. So, um, yep. So, anyways, I, I did a little intro, and you and I, I don't think have ever really done business together. So, I think we may have. Ah, uh, we did. And. and- you were at martin lighting right i was yeah what year from 1991 until n- mid 97 i think yes
1: yeah Yep. because i adam eric trolls uh griff was at high end i think then yeah but this was, was before martin. trolls trolls was a yeah, sales
0: was... guy in singapore uh when i okay. ran the martin sales organization here eric got gotcha. you eric worked with me um yep. Uh, Nick Freed. I don't know if you know Nick, but Nick, yep. worked, Nick worked for me back then. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the guys who then started in the Trolls era, um, I had already left. And, it's, you. you know, it's a long, boring story, but I left because the company had just gone public in Denmark. And at the time, Peter Johansson was still at the head. And I was very close with Peter, but let's just say that i didn't love everything that peter was doing at that moment and yep. due to the public markets and the sec in the united states i was kind of in fear for the fact that i was going to be blamed for some of the things that were going on that were less yeah. than scrupulous so um so i i left out of fear really and and i hated for two years that i left i actually went to high end for a little while and. I just felt like you know i i was in the wrong place most days but i i had to leave and and of course you know my impeccable timing i left right when the company you know had that hockey yeah. stick curve up
1: I, I mean that was to me and really quick about the gear that was kind of the, like the the highlight of of i guess my production company ownership existence because right. when when i had the concept to start backstage productions, the first incarnation, which was a full service production company, audio, lighting, um, trucking in, in air quotes, kind of fake trucking. Um, we had always planned on it being, um, you know, something where it was gonna, you know, turn into this massive company. But back then I was the first one in Minneapolis to own double hung box trucks. Oh. And, and that was like a big deal. And I had, I, I think I had, Four CM one tons I bought from Pete's Lights, which is Performance Lighting now. Thank yeah. you, Douglas Peterson and and Eric, but uh, Hanson. Um, but um, and then the the moving lights started coming out. You know, we all wanted to have berry lights, and you know the the clay packy stuff was ungodly expensive, and yeah. you know the OB stuff you couldn't buy. And so we were we were always like, you know, trying to find. I think the the Komar lights had just come out, um, and some of those, you know, some of the other you know, knockoffs and the Japanese knock or Chinese knockoffs. So very light. But then when Martin and high end came out, we were, I think we were really close to one of the first dealers in the Midwest. You know, I think there was one other guy in front of us wow. for high end and Martin. And, and it was, it was a game changer, but it also sort of, and, and not to jump right into this, but it also sort of was the catalyst to what I called kind of ruining my business side of it because you know, technology never goes along with the the progression of gear, meaning that like high end was notorious for this. They would release the Cyberlight and you buy 50 Cyberlights and you put them out on tour and halfway through the tour, Cyberlight CX would come out or X and you're like, well, what the fuck am I gonna do with all these? And yeah. now now I've got all these lights that nobody wants because they want the new and greatest and I could see that progression happening over and over again and yeah. it, and it it did.
0: It's changed a bit now. Like I, it you has. know, we it actually kind of mellowed uh, out. We talked about this last week. I talked with uh, Seth Jackson about it last week. What has happened is designers have become more corporate. To where they understand and, and accept the, the math, the finances of a tour and of a rental company better now. You know, so it's not yes. where I have to have the X model. It's like, oh, you got the, the regular model in stock. You can hit my budget. You know, let me just do a little tweak on the drawings and we'll use the, the regular model instead or they're yeah. specking or they're specking features not necessarily a specific product so it's got to have framing shutters it's got to have x number of lumens it's got to have zoom other yep. than that you know you pick the brand and well
1: and, and i think that you know back then one of the things that was interesting it, it it always was like the designers seemed to be in a position where they were kind of like wanting to see which production company could be their puppet Mm-hmm. And, and they could make them dance. And so they would be like, well, if you're not going to buy me, you know, a uh, hundred, you know, high end fixtures of whatever I want, or, you know, or I want the Martin max or whatever, then I'm going to go over to another company. And and there were companies that catered to that and they were much bigger and I'm not going to drop names, but they, they, that's what they did. They knew yeah. that the, the mom and pop shops and that's what we were, you know, we're, we're um, always trying to, you know, get every penny we could so that we could keep our doors open to make our payroll. Yeah. And you know, the, the funded people and the people that were, you know, beyond, uh, you know, way beyond ours and had multiple offices could just go call high end up and say, okay, give me a thousand. I'll put 300 on that tour. I'll put 200 in my shop and I'll yeah. put another hundred on this tour. It's, yeah. It, it was well, really hard to compete.
0: It, it wasn't just the production company. Some of the manufacturers got involved in, in those games, and even some of the manufacturers that I worked for at times. Um, And, you know, really it was kind of a, uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it wasn't really about the the final production in at at some point. Like it, it seemed like it was more about the business and who, you know, was getting oh, yeah. the, the better 100%. side of the deal or whatever. I don't know. Like it just seems like today, as much as I'm not a real fan of how corporate things have become now between uh you know, the three sixty deals and the, you know, whatever the the fact that now promoters kind of control things in the way that they do and the rental companies have become very corporate now um and are massive massive companies but you know as much as i'm not really a fan of of how unfriendly the business has become in a sense Um, I am a fan for the fiscal responsibility side of it. The fact that, you know, Hey, you know, your tour can't afford, or your show can't afford the product that you're specking. You're going to have to look at what we've got in our stock. You know, you can't make me go out and spend $5 million on these products for, uh, you know, a $40,000 a week tour or whatever, you know? So, but
1: but I, 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 to, I would say that, to ninety percent of that is a, is true. I think there's still ten percent of the companies that that buy their way into these tours. I mean, right. I, when I, I you know I, I was affiliated with a company and we were guilty of it just as much as anybody. Where we bought our way into a couple of tours, where you know we knew that there was a big tour and we knew that it was going to take you know I would say seventy five percent of the gear would be brand new, but we looked at it from, you know, one, we'll have the gear for our inventory Two, It kind of puts us on the map and makes us a little lo- more legitimate touring company. Yeah. So that game we played, but there's still, I mean, some of these tours that I, I, you know, I hear, you know, five to $10 million burn just to get the tour and buying gear. And then, you know, they're in the red when that sucker's over yeah, that for no another, sense. and it's just, they're still doing it. And I'm that like, makes no sense. have we not been sitting in the, in the, in the bleachers watching all of these companies that have done that? get into the trouble and now these other companies are kind of coming up right behind them yeah. doing the same thing. And it, it's, it's crazy. not going to change. Well, they just it have is. deeper
0: pockets. You know, now the companies have deeper pockets. There's private equity backing. There's, you know, in some cases, public money. And so, <laughs> yes. yeah, I mean, none of that stuff makes any sense to me. I've always, I've always sort of despised the the finances on the rental company side of things and felt sorry for the rental company because, you know, back in the day, and we sound old when we say those things, but back in the day you bought an Intellibeam for, you know, let's say three thousand dollars and you got two hundred and fifty bucks a week in rent for that Intellibeam for God knows yeah. how long. And yep. then you and that still was four
1: hundred.
0: <laughs> and then you sold the Intellibeam for a couple grand on the used market. Yeah. It was just such a win across the board and now you're buying a light that's ten thousand dollars your cost and you're renting it for 125 or 150 dollars a week i mean it makes no sense so you have to have such deep pockets
1: there there is an accounting senior thesis that could be written on how upside down the production industry runs yeah yeah. And, and i mean you granted it would be they would be handed a phd because I, I don't think they would even be able to figure it out. I think they could put a whole bunch of Harvard CPA, you know, yeah. masters graduates and sit them down with the books of 12 production companies. And they would be like, how, how are you guys even in business? That's like, so how is this possible?
0: Well, I, I was listening to your uh, accounting. <laughs> I, I'm going to talk about your, your, um, your YouTube videos in a little bit here, but I was listening to the Jake Barry one this morning and, uh, Jake said, you know, something about the art is being able to tell an accountant how five trucks is actually cheaper than four trucks, you know, or whatever. And, uh, (laughs) it's so funny because that's how the math works in this world. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's a screwy world. And, you know, I mean, I remember my, my boss at Martin in the early days was, uh, a French Jew who didn't come from the touring business. He's a great guy. He's still my friend today, but he's more of an electronics peddler kind of guy, right? He he owned a, a, He owned ended up owning Stanton Magnetics, Stanton Electronics, where they were selling DJ electronics and needles for turntables. And that was really his core business. So when he saw things like what we had to do to have lights out on tours, he was like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, how can we overnight parts like a $200 part? How can we spend $225 overnighting it to that client? And, you know, the answer is we've got a million dollars in lights out on that tour. Do you want to see him coming back home? <laughs> you know, I don't. So, <laughs> you know, the math doesn't always have to make sense. Let's face it, right? So, you know, I I kind of feel like I'm I'm, sort of flipping the table a little bit here because I've been watching your, uh, <laughs> your videos. And first of all, I mean, congratulations. I think you're doing a really great job with that. And oh, thank you. Um, so you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the episodes or, or the two in particular that I've watched most recently. And I don't know how many you've done. I'm at 80 now on this thing. And I can tell you it's a huge amount of work just getting to 80. So, you know, your funny joke at the front end there on on uh, the the you know, confetti for a thousand or whatever. Jesus, I'm starting to count the years and go, how old will I be at a thousand episodes? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I'm no Joe Rogan and and you know, he he can go in for a couple of days of podcasting and do ten episodes in a couple of days. Yeah. But that's all he does. I mean he's making twenty five million dollars a year or something from a podcast. So I'm not. I promise you that. (laughs) And uh and so anyways, um you know, in particular the the Jake Berry one that I watched this morning, I think is excellent, and um, I really think that anyone who's listening to this should go and I'm guessing that you just go on YouTube and you and you search backstage yeah, pass Jake Berry and you'll find it.
1: Yeah, you can even go to backstageproductionsinc.com and it's on our website too. So Yeah.
0: So. Um, you know the Jake Berry one. Um, you know, of course, Jake being the uh, iconic and and uh, you know the biggest production manager ever, probably or one of, arguably. Yeah. Um. But you know, one of the stories that I heard that I didn't know was that his first gig ever as a production manager was on ACDC. Yeah, that's, that's wild. Like I, I mean, I talking about getting thrown
1: into the mix, like. Yeah, You know, and, and one of the things about the Jake interview is I'd wanted to do the Jake interview like a couple of years ago when we started talking about putting this thing together, Yeah, because he was like my first person, like I, I got to work alongside Jake years ago and, and, you know, just, and got to see him and, and knew him through all the conferences between whole star and performance and then tour link and all the mm-hmm. other ones. And, and, you know, we got to be friends and, and I always, and I, I've, sat across the table of, with him in production meetings in New York. And, and you know, just the, the way that his brain works is, yeah. you know, I, I just want half of that, that knowledge. And just to, you know, when he told me that he got thrown into ACDC, I was like, of course you did. I'm like yeah. you, 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 your brain was already prepared for that. Like just th- yeah. the, the can do attitude. And, and you know, it, it's, I think that's one of the things that, um, not necessarily; it's a dying breed. And I'm trying to figure out how to word this correctly so I don't get people giving me thumbs downs. But I think that there there is a group of us that learned on the road, and we faked it kind of until we made it. Like there were there were times where I I was having lighting rig issues, and I could not figure out for the life of me. And I tanked a couple of shows, and I owned the company. Yeah. You know, we just we couldn't get the patch right. The moving lights weren't programmed. Whatever. The gremlins. And and I think Jake was that same way where he knew enough to sort of get the the basis together for, for the tours, but then he kind of made his own systems up because there were no systems, you know, he, he figured out. And that's the part that I just like, I'm enamored by and and enthralled by because to be able to do that, and especially on back then, you know, you didn't have cell phones, you didn't have computers, everything was was done with paper and mail, like you mailed riders and you know, I I was even part of the. You know, prior to facts. So think about—you have to build a system from scratch with paper and your brain. That's it. Yeah. No so. and, and 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 a production office phone if you get one.
0: Well, and there's no such thing as collaboration because by the time you mail it to you know whoever the lighting company was, the vendor, and then they get it and make changes to it and mail it back. I mean, there's no collaboration whatsoever. You no. got to send a completed. And so you know, he talked a little bit about that about. <laughs> you know, not carrying rigors with them. And, you know, he'd go in with, you know, three uh, trusses one time and two the next time and whatever they had time or the ability to hang in the venue uh, was what he hung. But I took a couple of things from that that were pretty cool. One was, you know, I think because of the way he landed uh, in the business, like literally, you know, getting picked up by Rick Wakeman and, uh, you know, dragged out to be part of Rick's show. And, and next thing you know, he's touring with them and, and then, um, you know, accidentally getting, getting the ACDC gig. But I think it was because of that, that his attitude is basically everyone starts somewhere. Everyone has a first day, you know? So when people send him out a crew that are green he doesn't necessarily complain. He goes, come on over here. You know, there's a moving light. There's a stage. There's a, yep. a drum riser. There's a whatever. And, um, you know, that to me is such an incredible quality in a person of such power like him, you know, on... on well, the and, 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 and it's a
1: discipline because, you know, I and, I and I like I told Jake, myself included, you know, we as, as production managers and people in the industry, even, you know, your crew chiefs, your MEs, when they sniff out new blood, the dynamic and the attitude changes instantly. Right. And then and, and you're just like, ah, oh, crap, really? I, I thought we have qualified stagehands and then that person has the big red target on their body. And, and, I'm not proud of it. I've done it. I know everybody else has done it. Yeah, Even I was going to say that
0: you showed some humility in the in the interview because you kind of said, well, you know, I wish I knew that a little further back because <laughs> yeah. you tore but, some uh, some yeah. new assholes into some of these stagehands yourself, it sounded like.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, some of them were just because, you know, it was, yeah. Just because it was we Thursday. were younger and, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were, yeah, we were angry or hungover or whatever. And then some yeah. of it was also that, you know, they would do dangerous stuff and, and you know, the new people sent, tend to get their heads torn off a little bit quicker right. and a little bit more harshly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. And that was one of the things that I, I really took away from Jake is, you know, just, you know, everybody's got a first aid and in, in, in really embracing that. And, yeah. and I, I was, you know, I was kind of shocked because the other thing I, I will say about the Jake interview that really shocked me and I knew this already, but when that's why I asked, he is one of the most hands-on production managers I've ever met there. There's, there's really kind of three production managers. There's the ones that sit in the production office and kind of micromanage everything from the office and a radio and their assistant. There's the other ones that kind of poke their head out and walk around a little bit and you know, Hey, don't forget that case. And you know, that goes in truck five or, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And then there's the third one, which, can be a good and a bad thing depending on how you look at it, but it is the Jake Barry and, and, and I'm I'm pretty active too. Anybody will tell you is I, if I'm production manager, I'm probably gonna be out on the floor more than the office unless I have a lot of paperwork, just so I can see what's going on and also make sure we're running on time. But Jake is for for the, the experience that Jake has, he could sit in his office and run everything no problem with assistance and with just the staff that he brings in. But the fact that he's out there putting a vest on and a hard hat and rolling cases and moving stuff around—yeah, thats was, amazing. and I've watched him do it a bunch of times, and he does it even at EDC, and you know, he he's really active as a production manager. Yeah, and and you know, anybody that is younger than him, which I think is everybody, should take you know, kind of heed to that and watch that. That he really is is somebody that cares about the show cares about what's going on and wants to see it. And and he wants to show you that it can be done. And, you know, and, and really, yeah. you know, if you're having problems here, let's, let's fix it together. So yeah. well, I, I, I respect the hell out of that.
0: The other thing that I really liked on the interview was, uh, he talked about the sad story of, of Bon Scott dying on, on ACDC. And, um, and then, you know, sitting in the pub with, uh, uh, with brian johnson and brian johnson yeah. gets the gig you know do you want to be the singer sure and as he's getting up ready to leave hours later from the pub he he turns to uh to jake and says uh you know you wouldn't mind borrowing me a tenor, would you <laughs> i need yeah, to put know, some right? gas in my car to get home <laughs> and he goes that fucker still hasn't paid me back so, yeah, that, that was just a really great interview and one that uh, I think you should be proud of. And, and I hope that our listeners will go and, um, and take a, a watch or a listen to that, uh, that interview. Yeah. And then the other one that I listened to that I really enjoyed was Tom Mayhew, um, you know, Guns N' Roses, ACDC, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, another great old-time guy with great stories and just a really cool attitude and really funny dude.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, um, Tom played off like, I mean, you know, we, Tom's a very busy man, very, very, very busy. And so we, uh, we really tried to, um, do that interview a lot sooner as well. And, and I finally caught him at Mates and and I knew he was there getting ready for the tour. And I'm like, Hey, we're going to come down with some cameras and film, and talked to Jimmy at Mates, and we rearranged it, and they gave us like a whole corner, so it looked like, you know, we're in this crazy bunker, and we just had a blast with it. And, and Tom, Tom's it was actually character. a really
0: cool backdrop for a for yeah. an interview because he had he had road cases with Guns and Rose Guns and Roses logos on them and stuff, and yeah, it was really a cool uh, cool location. Crazy how
1: they just kind of were set up in a half moon when we got there, so yeah. but anyway, yeah. but yeah, no, and 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 in those interviews were like. The, the whole goal of the backstage pass was really to, to interview, you know, we, what we wanted to interview some of the, the, the people we all talk about, but we really don't know their story because there, some of them aren't very social or they're not, you know, you're, you have to be touring before they kind of let you into their little clique. You know, yeah. it's, it's like a school and you, you, before you sit at their lunch table, you got to kind of get inducted.
0: Yeah, and,
1: and I want people to, to see these guys and hear their stories because when we're on the road, it sucks. You know, we're all on the grind and I, you know, I want other, you know, I'm going to use the word roadie. I know it's not correct anymore, but let's call it what it is sometimes. And and just say, I want everybody to know that's on the road that these guys all went through the same shit you're going through right yeah. now. And we, and you have the same stories that they do and you know, it, it's just hang in there. Yeah. And And for the people that are just starting out or thinking of it, Maybe it's an inspiration. Maybe there's something in there that, you know, I, I see these posts of people wanting to get in and you, you look on the, all the Facebook groups and my friends included, all get on there and like stay in school, go do something else. You yeah, know, you don't know, you bullshit, don't learn in school. It's like, guys, come on. Yeah. I mean, bullshit. we didn't know shit when we started out. Yeah. You know, we were just punks and. We should have gotten our asses kicked every day for all the stupid things we did. So well, not if they
0: want to do that, you should be promoting it and, and helping them find yeah. a way to do it, not telling them to run away and go do something different. I mean, yeah, there's good and bad moments and everything. I don't think anyone aspires really when they grow up thinking about astronauts and stuff to be an accountant. But, you <laughs> know, there's a lot of great accountants out there making lots of money, right? But oh, yeah, I, I don't, uh, you know, uh, last week I just mentioned that I had, uh, um, Seth Jackson on our podcast and Seth has a book coming out next month and, uh, it's called concert lighting and I can't remember the exact name, the stage, the business, the politics or something. I don't remember, but, um, Great title, though. but it, the, the, the book is all about, um, basically how to become a concert lighting designer. So you're just coming out of Full sale, or you're just coming out of theater school or whatever, and you want to be a lighting designer for, for live shows. How do you do it? And it's not about how to program a console or how to connect two lights together or what type of lights you should pick, you know, what brand or whatever. It's more about all of the things that you almost have to be out on the tour. Yeah. And like how to live with a bunch of guys on a tour bus. You know, whoever teaches yeah, yeah. you that, and that's pretty shocking the first time you have to go out and do it. And so, um, <laughs> really, you know. And then, you know, what what should your how what should your relationship look like with the different people on that team? The tour manager, the production manager, the you know, whatever. All those different members of the team. How should your relationship? You know, how should you uh, interact with them? And so yeah. just a really good idea I think to put a book like that out as opposed to you know sort of the the lines and diagrams of how to be a lighting designer more the you know what's it really like what's the gig like you know a day in I, the life I think
1: that's the that that is probably the most genius book I've heard of in all yeah. ever I mean because you know that the it there really should be sort of a road life manual and I think that's probably where he's going with it or part mm-hmm. of it but, yeah, I mean you know knowing your skill and your craft it like i said is about five percent and the other 95 percent is how to just function day to day and and treat it like a business and treat it like you know i mean when you compare old to new meaning that when i first started touring in the 80s or late 80s and and to today drastically different i mean and and you know as jake put it best he's like back then you always knew the guy that wasn't using and now you always can find the guy that is using. And that, yeah. and that was a great analogy because you know um, touring is just different now. And, and the, the way that the mentality behind it is, is a business. When, when I was touring, it was, we're getting paid to party every day. This is amazing, yeah. you know, and, and, and do whatever the hell we want. And it, when we like literally had no rules, we just did what, you know, I mean, there were, there were rules. You had to show up and do your job, but,
0: well, that's yeah. kind of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah. And so, so I think that you know now it, it is a lot more different in it, and for good and and bad reasons. But I think it can be more intimidating now than it was before. Like, you know, you just you you had to work under certain conditions, but now I I think that there's so many more rules and regulations and and all these other elements. And your boss to it is that, sober
0: now too. <laughs> Typically, yep. typically yep. your boss is sober, you know, we're in sober the past, and
1: watches everything like a hawk. You yeah.
0: Know? Yeah. Well, he needs to. But, you yeah. know, I mean, effort also has to be there. And I think it always did. Like, you, you know, again, one of the one of the cool lines that seems to get drawn between some of the lighting designers that came up through the 80s and stuff that I talked to on my podcast is that they outworked the people that were around them. And, and that was how they kept kind of rising up to the next level. They just worked so hard that when somebody went looking around, similar probably to Jake Berry getting the, the gig with, uh, with ACDC, you know, yeah. people look around and go, God, that guy's hustling his ass off. I want to give him a chance. And, um, I had Doc McGee on and, and he said something similar. Like he basically said, yeah, you really have to hustle and and you can't just be a poser. And he had the greatest line where he said, um, uh, he goes, Hey Marcel. So let me tell you, everybody's a bull rider until somebody opens the fucking gate. And, you know, <laughs> the greatest line, I'll never forget it, you know, because it's totally true. I mean, yeah, everybody says they can do something until you really actually have to do it. Right. So,
1: yeah, I, I've, I've had a few crew chiefs that I was like,
0: do you know what we're doing here? Yeah. <laughs> so are you uh, this uh, backstage pass? Are you going to be expanding this? Is this something real or like? And the reason yeah. I ask, let me let me explain to you quickly is. I've ever since I started doing a podcast 80, 79, 80 episodes ago, um, which was about a year and two or three months, um, you know, I was committed. I said, no matter what, I'm doing this thing. And when I originally started it, I have a company called Gearsource. And I thought that what it would do is know just well. drive drive traffic back to my company. You know, that's that's sure. what my only intention was at first. And then it suddenly became this sort of repository for these stories and these, these people in the, especially the lighting community, um, who, you know, just want to get on and talk about their story and talk about their life and everything else. And so it's become something completely different, but a lot of people came to me and said, Hey, I want to start a podcast. Hey, I want to start a podcast. And one of the things I've noticed is that 99% of those people never seem to get past five or six episodes. You know, they do a couple and then they go, well, fuck this. It's a lot of work, (laughs) you know, or, or I only had only my grandma and my cousin, Mary listened to my first one. This is a waste of time. And it's brutally difficult to get a following, you know, to these, to these recordings. I'll I'll
1: tell you for, for us, um, it wasn't really ever about the following it's, if for, for, my kind of perspective of it is, if 20 people watch it and they enjoy it and they get to hear a story of somebody's name, you know, we all hear these names bounce around forever we may not get to work with them. Mm-hmm. Then, then it, then it's the, the job's done. And, you know, I, I think about, you know, we have these people that have great stories. We always talk. every one of us and, and I'm sure yourself included is like, we should have, I should have written a book, but I could never write a book about it. We can't, yeah. we know that, yeah. but, there's little snippets of our book that we can write or we can talk about where we're not going to get in any trouble. And, and, and it's just a kind of a fun thing. And what I want to do is eventually turn this into where we're doing in and, and Jake and I spoke a little bit about this is not necessarily, you know, always the, the, a touring production tour managers and, and crew, but get into the, the guys that are in the trenches doing, you know, the club tours and, yeah. and hearing their story, because that's a story I haven't been a part of in a long time. I haven't been in an RV tour, you know, or a van tour. And well, I I would really date myself at 30 plus years, you know, and, yeah. and, um, those are the, the people I want to talk to. And so for, for backstage pass, I, if, if 20 people listen to it and watch it, great. If 200,000 people watch it, awesome. Yeah. And, well, you know, and, and, but and a- Jake and I have talked about kind of doing some stuff together about this.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, that sounds great. <laughs> I would yeah. argue that there's two issues with that. Number one is that um, guests who come on, one of the first things that most of my guests want to know before they come on is how many people will hear this. And I can give them with a great deal of confidence a number that it'll be at least this but it could be as high as this, and it goes on in perpetuity. So every week, you know, like I'll give you an example. John Wiseman recorded my podcast in, I think it was March of last year, and this week, John Wiseman will get about 60 or 70 downloads of his podcast on my... (laughs) Yeah, so I mean... You know, and it was almost a year ago now. So they they keep going in perpetuity. So number one, everybody's interested in the numbers. Everybody wants to know that people are listening. If I'm going to take two hours out of my day to come talk to you, they want to know that people are going to listen to it. And I'm going to bring people to you. You know, I'm going to benefit your business and your uh, episodes yeah, yeah. that are on YouTube because my listeners are going to come listen to yours as well. And that should happen, right? And well, then- most
1: importantly, I mean, the, the thing is, is that if, if I focused solely on the numbers as we're starting out, then my point is, is that I may not want to keep doing it. Yeah. But if I focus on the, on the product and what we're doing to me, that's more important. That's, that's yeah. what I'm no, trying to say. I
0: agree. And so there's a huge gap between, uh, solely on the numbers and I don't care if there's two people or yeah, 200,000 yeah. people. So right. somewhere in there is where I exist as well. I'm not just going to sell out and go try and get numbers. Um, by bringing Ariana Grande on or something, you know, I'm just not going to do it. That's not who yeah, I want to be or what I want to be. And we've had offers, we've had offers to have rock stars on and some different people on. And I had one just cause he's a really good friend of mine from Canada named Gatto. Um, but aside from that, I've, I've never brought a rock star or anyone like that on other than you, of course. And <laughs> Thank um, you. I, uh, I was waiting for that endorsement. So yeah. I, I feel much better well, now. The other thing is though, that, I think unless you find a way to monetize it, you are doing yourself an, an injustice because at yeah, some absolutely. point it's going to not be worth doing. And for right. me, I can tell you last week was one of those weeks. I did three podcasts that were great. All three of them were awesome, killer conversations. They're getting great numbers. But if I look at last week, I lost money, you know, basically, because each time I do one of these podcasts and then I have to edit it and then I have to upload it and then I have to promote it and then I have to whatever. First, I have to find a sponsor for it. Before that, I have to find the guest. And so, you know, if it wasn't at least worth something, and I can tell you the number doesn't match up right now to to what my time would be worth doing something else instead. So there's definitely an investment in my time uh, in this that will never get paid back. But it does need to pay for things like, for example, last, uh, uh, well, twice so far, we went to Infocom and to um, LDI simply to record podcasts. And we did about 10 episodes while we were at both of those shows. Well, you know, you're flying there, you're renting hotel rooms, you're spending three days there doing nothing but recording podcasts. I couldn't even go have beers with my friends. I was so busy. And then by six o'clock, I was exhausted, you know, just completely burned out from doing all this stuff because I'm not used to being a recording engineer anymore, you know? So, yeah, um, and
1: I can tell you doing doing the live, like the, the, the live interviews, yeah, it, it does wear you out. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, maybe down the road there, there is some, you know, there's some ideas of, of making it more of a, a mainstream yeah. thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you know, we'll, we'll see what the future holds and, yeah. and that could be as soon as June or July. So, well, I mean, there's you know, an
0: appetite for things like what you're doing backstage pass. I mean, that Jake Berry interview was awesome. I loved listening no, thank to you. him. I really enjoyed listening to him you know, the fact that you were able to get to him and take an hour of his time to do that. And you got some great information out of him. And like I said before, you just kind of wound him up and let him go. And Jake (laughs) is such a great talker and, and such a nice guy. And obviously, so, you know, uh, grateful to the industry and stuff. So he's, he's very kind in sharing his stories, but, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, now why video and why not podcasting? Just curious. I'm not promoting podcasting because or anything, but I chose it for specific I, reasons.
1: Sure, I, I chose the video for for the simple reason is the, all the characters in this industry are larger than life, yeah. and 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 they're entertaining to listen to. But their facial expressions, and and especially like Mayhew, you know, when the veins start popping out of his neck and he's imitating Jake Barry yelling at him uh, <laughs> on tour. That's yeah,
0: that was quite good stuff.
1: So like that kind of stuff is why video to me is important and that's the medium that I like to use. Um, and you know, podcasts, I I don't, you know, I don't listen to a a lot of podcasts. I listen to some industry podcasts and, and, and then some business podcasts, but I wanted to have some visual to it as well because like I said, you know, everybody in our industry is a character and they, they have this persona and they, and if you get to see the way they interact and they kind of talk and they, the way they tell their story with the passion or with the, you know, some of them have some, some anger in their face yeah, still yeah. from stories and no, situations. I agree. I agree. And, and, and that's why I chose it. And it yeah. does take a lot longer to to put together and, and we send rough cuts back and forth and I make notes and, yeah. and And RJ Lynn that, that, that makes the, or edits the videos and I, we spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. RJ spends more well, than I can does. tell
0: you though, like my my advice to you as my new buddy would be um, just to separate the audio tracks and push them up. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, push them up onto a hosting platform. I could spend fifteen minutes with you on the phone at some point, tell you exactly oh, wow. how to do it and save you a whole bunch of time and pain and aggravation. I can tell you how <laughs> to do it in fifteen minutes. It'll cost you about depending on how many you do, it'll cost you 20, 20 bucks to 50 bucks a month to have a hosting platform because you oh, host cool. it basically on a server and then that server pushes it out to all the, you know, Apple, iTunes, Google Play, oh my Spotify. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk. Yeah, it's really easy. And I can tell you that a large percentage of the people who listen to mine will not watch yours because they're not sitting at a desk or whatever. They're either yeah. on the treadmill, yep. they're in the car commuting in LA traffic, there um on an well, first airplane off, there's no
1: there, yeah there's no commuting in la traffic it's more sitting and watching yeah, trees
0: yeah it's gotten so <laughs> bad huh oh my god how you guys do it i have no idea i'm in south florida and i still complain you know god damn it i had to wait two lights to get through that light you know and uh but, I, yeah
1: no i always find it funny when people will talk about traffic yeah. anywhere other than where i live and it's yeah yeah like, oh.
0: I mean, let's face it, nobody else on this planet Earth probably cares about what we're talking about right now. So we should probably move on. But I did want to mention that because, you know, first of all, I really, really love the two interviews that I saw. And um, I just, you know, would love to see you be able to get them to a a wider audience. And, um, you know, one of the things I'll tell you one thing that I would even do for you. And I'm telling you right now on the air on the podcast is i would upload your jake berry interview as a podcast on geezers of gear um wow. and, then, and then direct people back to your youtube video of course so i'd be happy to do that if you can get me the audio tracks we'll do it in the next couple of weeks We'll get you. Yeah. and um and so yeah because i just think that's a really great great interview so you know here we are flipping the tables so how did you get your start
1: uh <laughs> you know I, I wanted to be in a in. Well, I was supposed to be a rock star drummer when I was in high school. I I don't know if anybody ever knew that it was on Wikipedia, but I was I was convinced that I was going to be a rock star drummer. the The problem was is that I was not rock star drummer quality. Um, and what I did have was um, I since I was the drummer, I had the PA system too. So that meant band practice was at my house, funny. which my parents were thrilled about. Yeah, <laughs> and supportive. But, why, uh, why is
0: it the drummer always had the sound system? Yeah, that is a great question because, I
1: mean, the sound system and the drums never fit in the car together. So it was always a trailer or, yeah. or whatever playing gigs. But um, I don't know. Like uh, you'd that, think that the, the singer
0: a, would have the the PA, right? Not not the drummer. Because
1: right? it's not, not to, 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 to rat out a lot of singers, but they tend to be a little bit lazier. They're busy with girls <laughs> and, you know, yeah. we're... we're. Well, drummers here. don't
0: get any girls, let's face it.
1: No, no, pretty much. We're the last ones. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I had the PA and and started doing audio for other bands and figured out I could make some money and then, uh, turned that into, uh, being the concert committee coordinator in college. And, and I had picked the name up for backstage productions when I was 16 and, and had written down that I was going to live in LA and I was going to do all this stuff and literally did everything. I mean, it was, this was never really a thought process. I always wanted to be in this business. And so when I was 17, I called a local company in Minneapolis and asked them if I could start working for them for free. And they were like, sure. So I came in and tried to learn everything about the business and I would sit on road cases and and they didn't have an office. It was just a warehouse with custom PA and I would, I make cold calls and I would call promoters. And I mean, I'd call, you know, jamming company seven uh, mm-hmm. and and try and sell them shows and they'd be like, well do you have a 40 channel channel console? Hang on a second. Like, do we have a 40? Yep. Yep, we got, we got a 40 channel. We have monitors. And, and the guy in the back that owns the company's like, oh God, what did I get myself into? That's but funny. we became great friends and uh, and then when I was 19, I written a business plan to start backstage and had gotten a tour under my belt and realized I didn't want to live on the road the rest of my life that I actually wanted to kind of build something and own it and, and then tour with it. And so I took uh, my, my little bullshit business plan and brought it around to 18 banks. And the 19th bank was one that gave me an unsecured loan for a hundred grand. And I had met, I don't remember how I met Pete lights. I met him on a show that I was on or something. And I drove down with a, my rider truck and, gave Douglas Peterson a check for a hundred grand and he gave me one of his used 10 foot truss Peeps lights rigs and applied electronics dimmer rack and uh, old QM 500 90 180. I had the only, I had one of two 180s that Rob Steele made and I backstage productions was up and running and got back to Minneapolis, brought it back to our, our brand new warehouse. And then the first show I did was Marie Osmond in a casino. and then. The week later, I got chicken pox for the first time in my life. Oh, no. And so my first employee and I worked, he worked in the warehouse, and I taped off the office with plastic, and we we ran the company. And then about three years later, the company I worked for when I was 17, I bought. Damn. And, and so we were an audio company.
0: What was that original business plan that you were out shopping to banks?
1: It was <laughs> so bad. It was... Uh, <clears throat> I, I had, had gone to college just enough to be dangerous with figuring out how to write a business plan and what they needed. And, you know, honestly, or back then it was quite differently uh, different with the banks, but, um, the business plan showed the market analysis. And and basically I showed that there was a demand for lighting trusts, the efficiency of having double hung trusts versus lamp bars and triangle trusts. And, how the cost savings we could make with union labor and non-union labor and the truck pack and you wouldn't have to have meat rats. Of course, the banks don't understand any of this. All they're understanding is, is that this guy thinks he's gonna do, I can't remember what I put in there, half a million dollars or something in two years. Let's let's take a chance. And we I think we did pretty close to that. We we paid that banknote off in I think eight months.
0: Wow. So it was
1: damn yeah. So once that happened the banks were like, okay, now granted the bank, and I had multiple relationships after that because I think at at the high point I had um, a couple million dollars out and you know, we were buying gear and then I opened up an office in Las Vegas in 1999, right when West sun closed four wall and backstage Vegas opened the same week. I just didn't have the pockets that Michael Cannon had. Yeah. And, and so it was hard to compete, but, uh, I, I had, I had tried to buy some of the West sun equipment and, um, and had didn't realize that it was under, uh, court order lockdown to be sold at auction. And, um, I got a nasty gram from the Canadian consulate of the cease and desist oh, to wow. proceeding with the, 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 forward purchase of any of the equipment. Wow. So, but I mean, you know, I think, I, I don't, I don't remember what happened with the auction, but we just decided that we'd buy brand new gear. And then in, uh, in 2003, I, I sold backstage Vegas and Minneapolis, uh, retained the name uh, and sold the assets and got out of it. Cause it was like every year we'd make more money and every year I get paid less money.
0: Yeah. I love those <clears> businesses.
1: And, yeah. And it, it was just the, the, the equipment, finance and the equipment technology was going so fast that it was hard to keep up. And if you didn't have uh, PRG money, you know, you, you know, you couldn't really compete. And, and quite honestly, I had uh, uh, an investor um, and, and some hedge fund guys out in New York that we were going to try and make a run for one of the bigger production companies on the west coast that might've been for sale. Um, this was in 2000 and 2001. And I, I sat down with some of the big executives of, of a company that has three letters and tried to make a run for one of their branches cause they were going to downsize and move everything to Vegas. And I was like, I, I kind of want, want to see if I can do this. And, uh, it didn't go through. And I came back and I said, I'm done. I, I, I wanted to have a West Coast office. I have Vegas but I wanted to have LA. That was, that was like the deal breaker for me is I want to have, you know, that next step. Wow. And so I, I cashed out and, and went on to just production management and then subsequently into band management. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was going to ask you because, you know, every time I have a guest on one of the things I do is spend a lot of time on Google trying to figure out who the hell they are and what they've done and, and those types of things. But, um, backstage productions is very confusing because you know there's a lot of iterations of it, of and there's an yeah. llc and an Inc. and then there was one yep. back then and then there wasn't one and obviously selling the company explains a lot of the or selling the assets explains a lot of the the missing pieces but um <laughs> yeah.
1: i had i had a, a, a very bizarre attorney in, in the 90s and when we opened up the vegas office i'm like well we'll just put it under backstage productions inc and he was like, nope, no, nope, it's gotta be an LLC. It's Vegas. You don't understand Vegas. I understand. And so, you know, the, the uh, instead of having to be one company, it was run as two separate companies, which was an accounting nightmare. Mm-hmm. So, um, but th- this, this attorney convinced me to do it and I was young enough and stupid enough to listen to him. So that's why there's like, you know, there's Inc., there's LLC and now there's backstage. Productions, but they're all Inc. you, they're all me.
0: Oh, wow. I just, I thought maybe, you know, and uh, you didn't trademark it or whatever and in different no, states no. because if you, you can have the same company name owned by different people in different states because you're registering with the state unless you're trademarking it nationally. So Yeah, you know, he,
1: he had some genius way of doing this. It was to protect the liability and whatever.
0: Wow. Wow. So Not the, not the smartest thing. <laughs> so you just keep going back and <laughs> renaming a company Backstage Productions.
1: It's, it's, it's even worse is that logo is is a logo that my neighbor designed for me in like 1986.
0: That is funny. That's great. Uh, he,
1: it was it was his high school senior project. That is to great. To design a logo. That um, is great. And yeah, so, and, and he's gone now. He had a, a fishing accident that a boat hit the rocks and Ooh. he passed away like three years ago. And so now the logo has even more meaning to
0: me. Oh yeah, you'll and never tell it. Take it, was, it.
1: Yeah. So, but yeah, it was just, it was crazy. Like everything is when I look back, I mean, like I said, everything was sort of kind of fell into place. It was never really planned as far as like the name or anything. It just, it kind of happened organically or if that sounds as crazy as it sounds, I mean, it, it just, I always wanted to be in this business and I would have done anything and, and I, I really spent a lot of time being very quiet and observing. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's really what I learned a lot is, it's just really paying attention and and watching how other people worked and how other people interacted. And, and some of it, I took away, there were positive things and some of it turned into really bad habits for a while. And, and, you know, and the way it handled people. I mean, I I remember there was, there was one venue in particular that uh, I had done Ted Nugent Prince. And then promise keepers tour went through and I I was the production manager for that and the lighting vendor and the promise keepers venue or date was the very last date. And I'd been through that same arena three times at that point and walked down the ramp. And I remember the union, steward and the building general manager were like, absolutely not. He is not coming in this building. And they're like, Patrick, like he's the sweetest guy. And they're like, absolutely not. He's the biggest asshole. We're not letting him in. We warned wow. you you're never allowed back. And we wound up having to have this very painful sit down of a meeting and I had to explain to them why the why they were mad at me and to, to promise keepers and to the venue. And I said, when I advanced Prince, I warned you five times that I wanted everything out of the back hallways. I wanted everything outside. And I wanted the stage level. And if we didn't have the stage level, we were going to take it down and start over because it had to be perfectly level for the Marley and all the other reasons. And I said, and I got promise after promise and I was promised the spotlights were brand new. And you know, I kept asking to, you know, what were they? And you guys kept dancing around the subject and it was just like over and over and over. So like by the time I I got into the venue, you know, I was, I, I knew that this was going to be one of the tougher shows. And by the time I got in the venue, I was just like, here we go. And, and wow. it just turned into an explosive day. And I mean, they, they could have brought me, you know, lobster and and champagne and dancing girls in bikinis. And it still wouldn't have changed anything about my attitude for the day. I mean, it was just, we, we were just done. It was. And so that was one of the, the worst ones I've ever had where I just, you know, I, I tried to be nice and it nice wasn't working. And I you know pulled everybody together and I chastised the union and and just we, we we had a very long day. The show went off great. Prince knew a little bit of what was going on, but you know, didn't care. And then comes the promise keepers. <laughs> they were, yeah. like, we're not going through this again with him. and and I, I, I apologize, but I also had explained my side of the story that I had warned them multiple times what I wanted and I expected. Because, you know, as you, as you know, when you get into these arenas and you're doing a six or seven truck tour uh, or, or more or 10 truck tour, I think that was, um, you know, every little ounce of real estate backstage is is crucial. And, yeah. and when you've got bleachers and dashers and, you know, boards for the ice and all that stuff stacked up and basketball hoops and – Yeah, but yeah, there, like was, there was –
0: a- there was a lesson hidden in all of this, though, wasn't there, which is, you yeah. know, basically there's there's a way to get that done without leaving, you know, people butthurt, you know, yeah. and oh, that, yeah. that's Absolutely. where that science of, of Jake Barry comes in, you know, where where you can treat people with dignity, but they're still scared to death of you and, and don't want to screw you and don't want to do anything that's going to put you on their bad side or whatever. Right. So,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, there was, there was one that was recent and, and I was at one of the Hollywood venues and I, I ran into a, an old employee of mine and, and I could hear him up in the back. And, and he says, you know, we've been here for four days and Patrick just kind of walks by and he goes, that might be a good thing. And as soon as he knows your name, you're in trouble. <laughs> I ah. was like, it's not that bad. Wow. I, and I, and I came over and I was joking with him. I'm like, that was a good one. Yeah. And I said, you know i just i want everybody to do their job and yeah. i think that's the most important thing and I, I think that there's there's a lot of people that kind of coast through this business just like any business that yeah. you know it's like the two stagehands that are always at the other end of the arena while you're working and doing load in yeah you know uh that kind of stuff drives me crazy
0: so what is backstage productions today
1: so backstage productions today is in it, we're, we're we keep getting called an agency. We keep getting called a production company, but we don't own gear. So it's just staff. It, it's, it's people that are our production managers their tour managers, the front of house engineers, their CAD designers. Um, and we basically can take, um, you know, we're, we're sort of a middle agent for a lot of projects. So, when the Germans come over, we'll handle all their logistics. We'll hi- handle hiring and procuring equipment. We'll do all their permitting. Um, if other production managers or other management companies need somebody to fill in quickly or do a full blown tour. They'll call us. Um, if some of the baby bands are in trouble, we'll help them put together their, their production Bible for lack of a better word. So we'll help them go through the advance and how to procure equipment. And then there's a small fee for that. Um, and so it's really touring and corporate the majority of our business is corporate right now. So we do a lot of the auto shows, esports. um, you know, I, we did with another company work and, and do tears for fears last year for a little bit. Um, which was fantastic. It was great to, that's one of my favorite bands from the eighties. So, yeah,
0: yeah. um,
1: and, and so it's, it's kind of molded and it keeps changing as our demands for, you know, from our clients keep changing. I mean, when we started out, we just wanted to be production managers and we'd hire some of the equipment and we've gone into doing show direction. We've gone into doing budgeting for them. Uh, it just, it just depends on what people need, but really uh, from, from a touring perspective, if, if there's a tour that's in trouble, or if there's a tour that's going out for four days and they don't really want to Hire somebody, you know, for just a four day run, because you know, obviously that's going to take them out of the touring world for a little bit. They'll call us, or if they're in an emergency or whatever, we'll come out and so it's and it's go out and help them.
0: Part sort of temp agency um, or employment agency for touring personnel, and then um, but you also get involved on the gear side too, right? Yep, so you're brokering, yeah, so we, brokering gear deals. Basically, somebody will come to you and say, "Here's here's what we need," and you'll go uh chase it down
1: yes or, or sometimes they'll, they'll they'll say that you know we're not sure what we need here's the event and w- the the one area that we won't get into is lighting design we'll we'll go find a designer to to go do it i mean that's my my last lighting design i think was in 93 or 94 and it
0: wasn't very good I mean, things um, have changed a bit since then too so <laughs> well, yeah, there's,
1: you know, using ray kits and ACLs, is just, yeah. people don't do it anymore. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah, it's but, um, <laughs> That's funny. But um God, I just remembered, sorry, a little side memory trip down memory lane. I remember the racks and racks of lamps that I used to have from, you know, very narrow to wide. And I mean, I'd have 300 lamps of each and I, I just remember the the, the walking in there one day just thinking of the money spent yeah and it's a recurring nightmare. Alone.
0: recurring nightmare yeah. yeah i wake up in a
1: cold sweat like no <laughs> but yeah anyway um so yeah we'll 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 work with up to anything up to the lighting design and then when it comes to the lighting design stage scenic set design uh we try and stay out of that it's not our area of expertise and you know And so your
0: your clients, are they, are they end user clients or are they like touring companies from someplace else who are coming in and need your services? Both. Oh, okay.
1: Yep. So we, we've got, uh, some clients are international. Um, and so, you know, we always have, uh, little gear translation issues here and there, but it's nothing we can't figure out. And then some of them are local where, you know, they're, they're going to have an event and they want to do. Um, You know, PowerPoints. They want to do videos. They want to have video walls, and we'll come in and help them. You know, put it together, and we'll, we'll run budgets by them and, and go through some proof of concept. So we, when we go, bring it to a designer. The foundation's there. We just need them to put the finishing touch on. You know, yeah. so we may say that we've got a budget for lighting of a couple hundred grand. Here's what we are, you know, what they the the elements of the show that they want to make sure they're are pinpointed and, and highlighted. You take it from there. And and that seems to work great. And for then us. are
0: you inserting a production company at that point too? Or Yep. Yeah, yeah. okay. I get it. Cool. Yeah. I mean there's uh, you know, I think that's what um before uh Inner circle distribution took off again. I think that's what Nick and Gary and Noel were doing with Showcats, basically. Yep. Something fairly similar it was similar. I don't know if they're still doing that or not, but they were using other people's inventory and going after shows. And, Personally, I uh, think
1: Gary should should just go and and have a TV stand-up comedy show. He's a funny. Dude. I mean the The post that that guy puts up, like yeah. I live for his posts. Like yeah. his brain works in a way that mine will never work.
0: <laughs> well, I'll I'll give you a bit of a clue or a hint. Um, many of those are not his posts. So they're stolen from other funny people. But and he's got some. Most are of them are. Most of them are his. He is a very very yeah. witty guy. And, um, you know, I, I've been down here for a long, long time and have been around those guys forever. I've been, uh, Nick's one of my closest friends and, uh, and therefore you had to bring Gary along too, because Nick and Gary were friends. So, um, I really, I really like all of those guys and I've worked with them all at different times in our careers and stuff. And, you know, they're, they're very successful now with, uh, with, uh, the Astera stuff at, at ICD. Yeah. So good for them. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful thing.
1: I have a question for you. So what is it about West Palm that all you guys love so much? Like I remember Griff Palmer, I think was down there for a while. And
0: I think that's about it. I think there's two of us. I
1: I think there was like a fence of like, you know, lighting industry people that were down there. Not really,
0: not really. I mean, I know. Uh, Griff still has a house down here. He's actually, uh, his house is in Jupiter, not in West Palm, which is just a little bit north of West. And I'm not actually in West Palm. I'm in Wellington, but nobody's ever heard of Wellington. And so Wellington is a a weird, like, uh, they call it the cold weather equestrian capital of the world. It's, you know, Bill Gates has a house here and, uh, Bloomberg (laughs) has a house here. All these gazillionaire. Uh, people whose kids ride horses um, and do the jumping and the dressage and polo and all that stuff. They're all down. Oh, no, you're so, kidding. So that's sort of the appeal to Wellington. I'm sort of on the other side. Like when it's season here, polo season here, I just hate it. I'd like to move somewhere else. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't really know any other people that are sort of in the Palm Beach area. Uh, Mike Steigner, he used to have a company called Highlights, Um, yep i remember highlights yeah he's he still does the occasional gig but uh i don't think he has highlights anymore maybe he does i don't know but um but yeah the rest of the guys like nick and gary well nick lives in uh the keys now and uh gary i think is still in plantation which is driving probably 35 40 minutes from me so there's a bunch of us down here and also you got to remember Robey has their head office down here. It all yep. started with with us, with Martin, and you know we were in Hollywood, Florida, and then in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Sunrise, Florida. Robey moved there and moved to the same area. Chauvet moved to the same area. Um, yep. So now all of a sudden there's these three huge lighting companies, and Martin not so much anymore. Martin has kind of uh, because they became part of Harman and Samsung, so they're kind of moved around a bit, but. Um, but yeah, it's become like a real hotspot for lighting companies down here for some reason. So it's, it's kind of a weird, weird thing. So, um, I mean, it's interesting. you know. It, the, the backstage productions thing is very interesting. And I, I kind of poked around your site a bunch and, and was trying to figure out what you did. And I thought I had it nailed pretty well. And, and I think you just kind of confirmed that. And I love what you're doing with Backstage Pass. Uh, and wish you nothing but luck with that. I, I obviously, I support it and will support it. Like I said, I'd be happy to, until you've got your own podcast, I'll pop a couple of them up for you on our podcast and just call it a geezers of gear episode with you doing it under backstage pass. You know, I, the one thing that's weird about podcasts, it's competitive, but it's not, you know, like there's another lighting podcast out there called, uh, the Lumen brothers And I've been talking to them, they're going to come on my podcast at some point, and they listen to mine, and I listen to theirs, and I listen to yours, and hopefully at some point you'll listen to mine. And um, it's it's competitive in a sense, but like even at the Joe Rogan level, half the people who come on his podcast have a podcast, and he'll go on theirs at some point. So it's a weird thing like that. You know, it's a, a very sort of collaborative shared world that we live in. So I've got this thing that I do at the end of every podcast called Quick Six, and it's basically the same six questions that I always ask. And I decided, I don't know, a couple of months ago to start organizing it and call it the Quick Six and put it at the end of our podcast. So question one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever given or received?
1: Uh, Shut up and listen. That's a good one. That's That's it. Yeah, it, it, it you learn so much more if you're not talking.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny because Seth Jackson said something similar last week. I think he quoted uh, um, Dr. Phil and it was, uh, you know, take a moment to shut up or something. I can't remember what the line was, but he was talking specifically about lighting designers. Basically, you know, pull the faders down every once in a while. Like, don't just turn everything <laughs> on. Don't just put everything on all the time. Every once in a while, have some peace and quiet and, you know, simplify the show a bit. But yeah, shut up and listen is a good one. And, you know, it started when we were babies. You know, you've got two ears and one mouth, (laughs) you know. yep. Uh, So um, you're in, in this business. One of the really cool things is that we get. Moments We get these moments that are just like, you can't experience some of the things that we experience in most jobs, you know, meeting people that you, you know, idolized as a kid or, you know, for me, like there's some, some really cool moments that I've had, but what is your biggest career pinch me moment?
1: Um, wow. Uh, I I'll, will i will say this. So I, um, this might be a little bit long, but I'll, just give me a second here. No so worries. Bob Dallas and I had done methods of mayhem with Tommy Lee and I was the lighting vendor and Bob called me up and said, Hey, the tour is over, but there's this new band they're called Lincoln park. They're touring in a van right now. They're picking up a bus in Minneapolis. Can we use your parking lot? And we want you to do a little light package for them. Cause they're going to go do Ozfest or something. And I was like, sure. And I, I kind of had heard, um, you know, one or two songs from hybrid theory and, and got to meet the band. They're super cool. Chester was like, just amazing. Watched the show at, at Prince's old club, glam slam, which I think whatever it was called then. And then, you know, you fast forward to uh, two years ago and I get a call from Digby and i uh, gonna choke up. Um, and he said, I would like you to, call the show at the Hollywood bowl for the Chester tribute oh, and, wow. and, and, and direct the show. And I, he said, I, I would, I would do it, but I don't think I can do it. And I said, no problem. I, I said, I would, I would be honored to. And so, you know, it was, I guess 20 plus years where we come 360 and, you know, like the hair on my arm is standing yeah. up. right now. It's, it's,
0: yeah. it's
1: just, it's, it was, it yeah. was, the one pinch me moment, but it was also one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my oh, life because so sad. yeah, we're I was so devastated by it, but we got through it. Um, it was uh, it was it was probably the the one life experience I'll never forget, and that it's the one thing in my my career that sticks out more than anything was you know being a part of the the Chester tribute and getting to be a, a, a you know watching it from kind of day one to. Hopefully not the end, but to uh, the end of one chapter and hopefully the beginning of another.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. That's definitely, uh, you know, a very different story than than what I'd heard. uh, uh, Yeah. You know, from other people, because usually it's Sorry. oh, when I bring it down, but when when I met uh, Farrah Fawcett, that was it, you know. Uh, yeah. and you know I have so many too and, and I would say none of them were quite as intense as the one that you just told me um, is there and you know you're not a lighting designer so a lot of people I ask this question of are lighting designers and, I started and, out as a
1: lighting designer on, yeah. on paper no I'm kidding But
0: if, if the answer is no then just say no but is there one piece of gear that you can't do your job without
1: um yeah, I mean, I, I think my laptop. Yeah. You know, that, that that's a piece of gear, and I mean, you know, I I remember having a, a desktop that we tried to carry around in a road case. Yeah. To, yeah, <laughs> to pull off what we did and and run FileMaker Pro before we had, you know, wow. I, I think my first Mac was like a MacBook five or three hundred one or something. So yeah. You know. wow. But yeah. Wow. I, yeah. I mean, Laptop, I'd be dead. Yeah, cell phone, I could live without.
0: This is this is another one more specific to the the lighting or sound business. But is there any gear, piece of gear, item, whatever that hasn't been created that you would like to see created? Ooh, that's a tough one.
1: Hmm. Ob- you know, obviously from a production manager's standpoint, the wireless power would be fantastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, no, you know, that's a great and,
0: answer. And you're not the first person who said that,
1: you know, I mean, if, as soon as we can create that, and I don't know if it's Tesla coils on top of truss or something, but I'm all for it because, you know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, the beaches are just filled with, with cable and, and you know, the cable porn guys are great, but, they're few and far between, and touring most don't exist. So yeah, you know it's well, kind of slam in, and and it's always an issue trying to get cable over doorways oh, yeah. and fire marshals and all that. So yeah, the wireless cable would be one great.
0: of the one of the things that someone actually suggested on this podcast at one point was having truss with like you said Tesla batteries basically built into the pipes of the truss, and so that you know basically these truss pieces are being um, recharged either while they're traveling or, you know, when they arrive at the venue or whatever it is, but they're being recharged somehow. And then when the truss gets put together, you're just plugging lights into the truss itself. So, you know, or just battery powered lighting fixtures, you know,
1: just. Well, uh, I mean, I think with the, with the invention of LED and, you know, and it seems like the, the last, Maybe three to five months. the The carbon footprint discussion keeps coming up more and more, and it was a, a big topic at Polestar. Star, yeah. and it's been a big topic in the touring because you know, as as a touring world, we our carbon footprint's pretty ridiculous. Not yeah, that I agree. I, I'm a, a climatologist or and or worried about climate change as much as the next guy, but but I mean, it's still with with airplanes and all the other trucking and buses and all that you, you know we're we're pretty big you know uh, offenders of, yeah. of the carbon footprint so well,
0: then the other I, thing is also um that the rigs just keep getting more and more gear into them you know when you put in the video screens and you put in like it just seems like we're packing more product per square foot than we ever have on these tours and yeah. so one of the things that we're starting to see a lot of innovation is making things lighter, making things thinner, making things smaller, making things that fit into the truck better or that go up and come down quicker. You know, a lot of stuff that is, is not really, it doesn't change the, the output or the, the, sh- the fans don't see it necessarily, but it lowers your bills on running a tour. It lowers your carbon footprint. It, yep. it goes up and down faster. And so I think we're going to see a lot more technology come out in that sort of world, you know, making all of our jobs easier, better, safer, etc. cetera. You um, know,
1: a, a really quick. I, I think one of the things that I remember when the Sharpie came out and, you know, this is years ago, but we just were blown away by how small the fixture was and how much light output was. And, and yeah. like, that's one of those things where it was like the, the Sharpie to me was like, you know, such a, a game changer, just weight wise and output wise, yeah. you know, it was like, Oh, wow, these things are so tiny. Yeah. They're so bright. And, you know, we all did the the egg test in the shop and fried eggs with the Sharpie and burned holes. Yeah. Through, yeah. Through shit. But well, yeah.
0: I remember the LDI when it was launched and they had them like up on top of a booth, like almost like a searchlight going above the heads of everyone on the trade show floor. And I was like, what the hell is that? Like why has somebody got a beam going like that? And, they're like, oh, you haven't seen that thing? It's like a little 170-watt lamp. It's unbelievable. And, yeah. uh, and of course, I went and checked it out. And it, it was one of those, um, as I recall, it was like one of those post-it note kind of situations where it was by mistake. You know, it was an accident. It, it wasn't really designed that way. And then there was an accident that basically happened, and they went, oh, look at that you know, and really, uh, yeah. I mean, don't quote me on it, but I seem to recall hearing that from, uh, I had, uh, Pio Nahum, the former CEO of, of, uh, Clay Packie on the podcast. And he told us the story and I'd have to go back and listen to it again, but I recall it being somewhat of a mistake. Yeah. Um, who was or is the greatest influence in your career?
1: Wow. Um, I think it's really, I, I would say it would be Jay Sendick, who was a business manager from Sendick and Leonard. They, they did Rolling Stones and uh, Manson and then Stuart Ross, who lives not too far from me. Um, Stuart's one of those people where uh, I just respect the hell out of, and I've always looked up to Stuart and Stuart's been, Stuart made a phone call one time when I was kind of in, in the shits. And he called me up and he said, I just spoke to Charlie. We're gonna do this, this, and this. You you don't worry about it. Here's what you need to do next. And I was just like, Wow. I'm like it's crazy
0: you know, to realize you have friends like that, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And and but I mean I, I felt like a five year old. Like it was yeah. like my dad just talking to me, like, you know, you scraped your knee, now we're gonna pick you up, we're gonna put you back on the bike and keep riding. And yeah. and like and I and you know, I've I've known Stuart since I was twenty. And, and, you know, all these years later, and we've been friends, he's come over to my house, you know, and had Thanksgiving together. But just to have somebody at that level, th- in my mind, you know, show me, I guess, that respect was, it, it just, yeah, I, it, that's incredible. I've never forgotten it.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And then finally, one of the things that I love about our industry, um, is really the, the the gratitude that we show, but also just the generosity from our industry. So, you know, when, when someone is injured, you know, people get together and help pay his, you know, almost exactly like what you're talking about when you said you were down and you got that call from Stuart saying, we got you. Um, So do you do anything either like officially or unofficially when it comes to any kind of charity coaching, mentoring, uh, you know, p- giving back to to the industry that has been kind to you at different parts of your life.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, uh, mentoring is something that's really important to me, and and there's a couple of venues that we're kind of a middle agent for that we we work both sides. So we work on behalf of the venue side, but we also work on the client side, and their new staff. We always come in and and train and and kind of help them out. And we always, you know, we show them why we do things and, and we kind of bring them under our wings. And now, even like production coordinators, I don't mind having a green production coordinator as long as he or she is willing to learn. I'm, I'm, I will teach them the world. There's nothing to hide. This business is plenty big enough for all of us. Yeah. And, and I really, I like the fact that people are eager to learn what I don't yeah. like are when, when people, have expectations or entitlement that they haven't earned yeah. or, or, you know, it's, it's, and it seems to be growing a little bit, but the, the really young waves, like I'm talking 18 to 23 seem to have a different mentality and, and I don't know why that is, but they seem to be back to the way it was in the eighties and nineties where they're hungrier and they're more, more willing to learn. And I, I, get emails from people a couple times a week from people wanting to start out and asking me, well, what do you think of full sale? And what do you think of the schools? And should I try and go on the road and, and asking for advice just you know? And so I, and I have no problem answering those emails. I'm never too good good. to to answer those.
0: Well, and to add to that, I think what you're doing with your video and, and hopefully you keep it up and you get more frequent with it because that is the hard part. I mean, committing to doing these things is hard enough by itself, but you know, you're, you're, uh, you're my second podcast this week and I'm not doing any more because I, my son has a racing event, uh, in Georgia this week. So I'll be out for a couple days, but, um, it, it's a huge commitment. And as we said earlier, you're not making money from it. Even if I've got sponsors to my podcast, it isn't a living. I promise you it's basically yeah. barely covering costs. So, um, you know the fact that you're giving your time to bring an interview as powerful as that Jake Barry one to me is is awesome, and that in a sense is giving back uh, all by itself. So, Oh, thank you. Yeah, keep that going. Um, anything I missed? Anything you're promoting or you want to talk about that I didn't bring up already or?
1: No, I, I, you know, I, this is my first time getting interviewed back in a while. So it's awesome. It's kind of, it's, it's very refreshing. And and I love talking to you and, and I I look forward to, a long-standing relationship awesome. between geezers and backstage paths. Oh, definitely.
0: Um, As I said, you know, please let's, let's set up a call at some point you yeah. know, in the next couple of weeks or whatever, and talk about getting at least that Jake Barry interview up, because I think yeah. even if people can't see it on video, they should be able to see it on audio somehow. And we'll direct them back to the video so they can go back and watch it after or whatever. But, uh, people should hear that.
1: I love that, and someday I'll be a geezer too. So I, you know, yeah. I, I like.
0: Well, we all aspire to become geezers. You know, some of us I think already have, but are in denial. Uh, others, that would be me. Yeah, me, me, as well. <laughs> me as well. You know, it's why. Uh, you know, you you commented on that picture behind my shoulder here, which nobody who's listening can hear, but that was me with hair standing there with uh, with Nikki Six, just kind of going, "Yeah, I'm badass." But, uh, yep. Uh, I think I have a
1: couple of those with Tommy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: I got, I got a couple with Tommy too. He's a great guy. All right, Patrick. Well, thank you so much for taking time this uh, morning and doing this with me. And anything I can do, just please reach out and uh, happy to help. I look forward to listening to more of them. All right, man. Thanks. Thank you.